everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. And tonight we're happy to have Dr. Cameron Hohmeyer. He is the Associate Professor at the University of Oklahoma. We're going to be talking about some research that he's doing in the troposphere and talking about uh, a couple of new projects that are going on. In fact, one that, uh, that I did not know about until earlier uh, today, and that is uh, the Dynamics and Chemistry of Summer Stratosphere, uh, the field campaign, which I'm really interested to find out about. We're going to talk about uh, some th uh, thunderstorms and how uh, how we can uh, detect those and better forecast those. So, uh, Cameron, we welcome you to the program. And our first, um, kind of our first question to every guest is, uh, how did you kind of get caught up into this weather bug that we all have uh, uh, what what is like your weather story that kind of got you hooked into this? Yeah, well, so I, I grew up in Texas and Louisiana, my early life, and um, you know we we experienced a lot of tropical cyclones, you know, landfalling tropical cyclones. Biggest impact uh, impactful event that I remember growing up uh, was Tropical Storm Allison, and at my house it, it dropped over 19 inches of rain and in, in just over 24 hours. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been an avid gardener my whole life. It kind of runs in the family, farming and gardening. And I had had this beautiful garden, best garden I ever had. And then Tropical Storm Allison came and, and just ruined it. Um, and so I, I remember being very, very uh, frustrated at that uh, whenever I was, I was younger. Uh, so I had that. We had, you know, ice storms. We had just about everything in southeast Texas, where I spent most of my early years. And, uh, you know, because I was interested in, in gardening, farming, sort of agricultural uh, things and impacted directly by the weather, I uh, sunk uh, a lot of my time into looking at radar data and uh, forecasts and really trying to, to get a handle on it whenever I was in you know, middle school and high school. And by the time I was coming up to graduate high school, I was, you know, an hour, a little over an hour away from Texas A&M University, and they had a meteorology program, and I thought, well, uh, I'd like to go there, and so I applied there. The only school I applied to uh, for, for college, I wasn't sure if I was going to get in. My backup plan was to go to culinary school in Houston, because they had a great culinary school there, and I, I also really like to cook, so I thought, you know, if I can't get into meteorology, I'll go to culinary school, and uh, it all worked out. Got into meteorology, went to Texas A&M. Ended up staying there for all three degrees all the way through graduate school and then left there and, and uh, went to Colorado for a couple of years before I came to Oklahoma. When you went to Colorado, was that uh, collegiate related or uh, ha have you always been in the collegiate path or did you do any National Weather Service or broadcast or? Yeah, I went to, to the National Center for Atmospheric Research okay. there and, and did a postdoc. So after I finished my PhD, it's been two years there doing some independent research before I, uh, you know, felt the draw to, to go back to academia. I found that I missed, you know, being in academia, working with students, and um, yeah, I wanted to go back and be a faculty member. So I applied to, oh gosh, a dozen jobs or, or so, and uh, and ended up, you know, choosing Oklahoma. I want to start with radars, and uh, I, I know we have some different topics we want to talk about, but uh, you have uh, helped uh, come with, up with the grid, Rad, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But first of all, uh, I want to kind of get the 30,000-foot scape. We've talked about radars on this program before, so I don't want to kind of get into the details of how they work, but I want to get your perspective on the overall radar coverage and, and how we are as uh, – 
the United States. How are we doing with radar coverage? We, we continue to see uh, over storm coverage. There's a fact a couple of weeks ago in Arkansas where um, there was a tornado emergency issued for Jonesboro area. And it was kind of in this radar hole. And, and so we were, we're kind of pulling radar from, from a lot of different locations trying to get a, a better look at the storm. So uh, how do you think we are right now as a country with our radar coverage? Well, I mean, the United States is the most advanced country in the world uh, in terms of uh, you know, atmospheric observing. And radar is, is no, you know, no different than a lot of the other platforms that we have. Um, I'd say, you know, 30,000 foot view, uh, we have this incredible network of radars to the United States that have been maintained for over two decades and have provided a wealth of observations. Those observations aren't just excellent for you know, warning and life-saving measures that you know, we, we commonly pour over uh, for, but also for research. And I, you know, when it comes to, to my involvement in, in radar a lot, it's you know, recognizing the fact that we have this longstanding network that's available to be leveraged for a, a lot of climatological studies of storms. Um, and it's a you know, largely untapped resource. In terms of holes, you know, people usually talk about radar holes because they're focused on the low level coverage, you know, the lowest few kilometers above ground. And there, you, know, you have to be within you know, 80, 90 kilometers of a radar location to get really good low level coverage. Once you get you know, past 100 kilometers away, it's difficult to see because, you know, the curvature of the earth is going down and the radar beam, you know, is going up and, uh, and it, you know, you really start to get that, that quick separation between where the lowest observation is and, and the ground. Uh, and so when we talk about holes, we usually talk about those and uh, that, that low level coverage in particular, because if you, if you look at the full three-dimensional coverage, we actually have, you know, complete coverage of the entire United States. We can see uh, any really deep things like thunderstorms anywhere. Uh, the problem is from a warning perspective, we really wanna know uh, about low level rotation and its evolution and you know, what, it, uh, what it says about potential for uh, tornado genesis and, and those kind of impacts. Um, and that's where that becomes a problem. We have a few places where uh, I think adding radars would be really, really helpful. Uh, Northeast Texas and Central Texas, East Central Texas are you know, one real important corridor where uh, we can you know, make a big impact by improving coverage there because we've got a lot of dense population in that region. You mentioned Arkansas. Uh, that's another, Northern Arkansas is another location that, that could benefit from that. The Southeast, really the Eastern US, uh, East of the Plains is the densest area of the entire network, especially the Southeast. Uh, and we've got really excellent coverage uh, in that region. When you get to the high plains is where you have some of the more pervasive uh, coverage gaps that aren't really restricted by uh, sighting issues. And when I say sighting issues, you go out west in the mountains, it's really difficult to find a great location where you can place a radar and not just stare at a mountain <laughs> the entire time when you're trying to take an observation. Um, so when you get into the northern plains, we've got a lot of big storms up, you know, really north of Kansas, things really start to, to degrade in terms of coverage. Um, in that region, we could really benefit from more radars. The motivation is, is not as strong there because the population density is much lower. 
And it's a, it's a really a balance from a national level of supporting the most individuals that we have to support uh, and providing comprehensive coverage. And that's where, you know, historically they've made some sacrifices. I think that's a good segue into what I want to ask you about, which is your research, because I know your research focuses on that upper level of the atmosphere, of the troposphere, and especially the tropopause. So is there a way that the radar from a distance looking at the upper levels can help you with your research? And how else do you measure that? In, in terms of my group's work on, on severe storms in particular, which is often, uh, you know, a high impact event that you would really be focused on in terms of radar observations. Our focus in the past five to 10 years on that has been trying to figure out what characteristics of the storm at upper levels uh, may be most useful to identifying storms that maybe have a higher propensity for tornadoes or hail or winds. It, when it comes to hail, hail, upper level observations are, are really excellent and key. I mean, that's how we do a lot of radar-based climatologies of hail. It's all the upper level observations. It's not so much what's happening down near the surface. Um, and uh, when it comes to tornadoes, that's a, almost a completely different problem. It's all about what's happening down low, but you need sufficient support from the storm above to ultimately generate a tornado, right? There's plenty of rotation in a lot of environments uh, but it's about that rotation being stretched by an updraft to form a tornado. And if you can look at the upper levels of, of the storms, you can identify strong uh, updrafts, strong storms that you know, are able to provide that support to form tornadoes below. Uh, but it's not, neither of these things are sufficient. They're helpful, but they're, they're insufficient. You really need a complete picture uh, to get, you know, to get uh, the best knowledge. In terms of my group's research on that problem, what we found is that, um, you know, we, we focus a lot on storms that reach above the tropopause, right? So a lot of people, when they think about the atmosphere, they think about the weather, you know, once, once you get to the tropopause, people tend to not pay a, a whole lot of attention beyond that point um, because the tropopause is right at the top of the layer that we live in and where most of, of all the storm activity is confined to. Uh, but when storms are really strong, they can reach above the tropopause into the stratosphere. Uh, and uh, my group is, is interested in all the things that happen to the stratosphere as well. But the storms that do that also happen to be uh, the storms that produce the vast majority of severe weather. And certain types of those storms, combination of radar and satellite information, uh, we can identify some of the most severe storms by looking at the storm tops, uh, but getting into you know really specific hazard type you know, communication and warning decision making uh, that also depends crucially on the low level data well, so. let, let's talk about that you, you overshooting tops i know is a big thing that uh that you like studying and that kind of relates with what we're talking about yeah. so talk a, a little bit about the importance of those for who may not be as weather savvy as, as others and then kind of what you guys are doing with that and overshooting top itself is just a, a protrusion of a, a cloud dome uh, in a thunderstorm that reaches above the broader anvil cloud. So if you look at a thunderstorm, we, we call it an anvil cloud because it looks like an old metal anvil. The top of the thunderstorm uh, usually spreads out really rapidly in the upper troposphere just beneath the tropopause. 
But within the core of the storm, a really strong upward motion in the core of the storm, the rising air in that region uh, usually has so much speed by the time it reaches the tropopause that it reaches even higher. Um, and, and that level that it reaches, uh, if it also happens to coincide with the tropopause, reaches into the stratosphere, which is most of what I focus on in terms of, of overshooting convection. We call it tropopause overshooting convection to be really specific. Um, but uh, yeah, that has uh, a lot of really relevant uh, impacts to climate because if you have storms reaching up into the stratosphere, they put water there, uh, water vapor there, and uh, water vapor is a really powerful greenhouse gas, and uh, and that you know can help uh, modify climate. And we have you know suggestions from climate models that support for these types of storms is increasing over time. As, as the globe is warming, we have environments that are more conducive to thunderstorms. Maybe not severe thunderstorms, but more conducive to thunderstorms. And, uh, and that can you know, lead to, to greater impacts on, on the stratosphere, which is what that field campaign is all about. We're trying to chase, uh, chase air that's coming out of overshooting tops in the stratosphere and measure that with, with a whole bunch of instruments on an aircraft. Uh, and that helps us really understand what the impacts are to climate. Um, and we can you know, leverage some of that information to try to understand what that says about the, the broader characteristics of the storm, maybe even looking at something like its severity. What are you looking for when you, I mean, you just don't send an airplane up, I'm assuming, every day. Like, tell us uh, the logistics of that and how everything goes along with that and, and kind of just what specifically you guys are looking for and then what you do with that, that data once you get it. Well, we are sending an airplane up just about every day, every other day, um, but only for a, a confined period. Uh, so we had our first deployment. This is a NASA field project. So it's an Earth Ventures suborbital campaign. That's one of these $30 million field projects that NASA funds every five years. And uh, this campaign, we have the NASA ER-2. The ER-2 is very similar to a U-2, which is a, a very you know, well-known spy plane. Right? It flies very, very high on the atmosphere. In fact, we reach up uh, 60,000 feet uh, with, this, with this aircraft uh, on, on the regular. Almost every, every flight, we can get that high. Um, and what we're trying to do is identify storms that reach above the tropopause with radar data uh, in the United States and with satellite observations from GOES. And we look for these overshooting tops, and then we track them with a trajectory model. It's a really, you know, rigorous, complicated process to do all these things. We make, combine all the radar data from, from all the radars into one big unified product. And then we look for storms that reach above the tropopause. And then we put in what we call particles, uh, basically, you know, little parcels of air that we then move with uh, the atmospheric winds based on the, the forecast models and predict where all the air from these overshoots is going. And then we plan a flight and take off with the airplane and go and sample where we expect that material to be. And most of the time, you know, we see exactly what we're looking for. And that's a, a whole lot of enhanced water vapor in the stratosphere, but in, it can include other things like tropospheric uh, gases that are, are coming out of uh, pollution from man-made, you, know, uh, you know, from human activity. Um, so we, we burn a lot of fossil fuels. We burn a lot of fuels for energy and for our cars and all these things. There's a lot of really unique 
gases that come out of that um, that are in the troposphere and not you know, very much of that in the stratosphere. And so we can look at the transport of air and we can look at the, you know, the amount of water that, that's impacted in the stratosphere and understand what these storms are doing to stratospheric composition. I want, I want to go back to a little bit about radar because we didn't really get into what you've been working on, and, and that's something called GridRad. Uh, so uh, could you tell us a little bit about this? It, it looks really like a really cool product. Um, again, um, not familiar with it until, until you know discussing things with you off the air. So uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and what kind of what the, the push was for. Yeah, well, the push was trying to, to identify overshooting tops. Uh, that was that was the goal, and uh, there are a few other uh, alternative data sets that are really similar to this out there in the community. I mean, some products out of NOAA and, and these sorts of things, um, uh, those, those, those groups. But uh, the essence of this product is we take all the operational radars and we blend them into one unified, uh, you know, multi-radar data set. And we have several different uh, public. Uh, you know, versions of this GridRad data out there um, that, you know, have different span in terms of how, how broad they reach across the United States uh, and what, you know, really they're, they're made to, to understand best. But ultimately it was, it formed out of our focus on wanting to get really good uh, estimates and climatological evaluation of the occurrence of tropopause overshooting storms. And so we, we built these products, we made a whole bunch of of, uh, of the multi-radar products every hour for over 20 years, the first time that we did this. Uh, we did it for everything kind of east of the Rockies in the United States. And we, we made the first detailed radar-based climatology of tropopause overshooting convection in the United States. And, uh, and that is, you know, complements a lot of what before was, was mainly done from satellite. Uh, so now, you know, we've been doing this with the ground-based radars we use a very unique set of methods to build the data, which is very different than the approach in some other groups because our primary motivation is getting triple pause overshooting convection. We've, we've created uh, the algorithms to try to get the vertical structure of the storm as best as, as we can. We've validated it against other external data sets. Um, whereas uh, you know, a lot of the focus on operational NOAA side for making these types of products is precipitation estimates. They want really, really good precipitation estimates so that they can uh, you know, have good decision-making for flash flooding events and you know, all, all these sorts of watershed analyses that are, are super, super important and you know, big impacts, but they, you know, they have ties to the FAA, you know, they use some of those products because it gives them a unified product to look at how tall storms are. Um, and they, they do severe storms research with the, the blended products from the other groups as well as, as we do with ours. But our uh, methods and our data set was motivated by trying to understand triple pause overshooting convection better. We'll switch gears a little bit here now and uh, go into some uh, fun questions that we uh, like to ask all of our guests. And uh, I, I've been looking forward to this ever since uh, you said that uh, you were considering culinary school uh, out, of, out of college. Uh, if you weren't going to be a meteorologist, you might have been a chef. So uh, this is uh, 
That's, that, that's great because I'm always asking about what the best place to eat in a town is. And since I visited Norman, I know a couple spots, but mm-hmm. I want to hear your opinion. If you're coming to Norman to visit for a conference, workshop, whatever, like I did once, yeah. uh, are you, uh, what is uh, one or more restaurants that yeah. you got to go visit? My wife and I like to go to, to Legends every once in a while. Legends has been here forever and it's, uh, it's down right in the heart of Norman, not too far from campus. Uh, and they're known for these incredible desserts, but, uh, and they used to have this really great salad bar. I think post COVID they don't have the open salad bar anymore. Um, but, uh, but they, they have, you know, the full menu is, is, you know, very good, but I think that the desserts are really unique and, uh, and that, you know, all around is a great dinner place. Um, there's a number of places that are, are really good for different uh, different occasions and different settings. Um, we also really like Benvenuti's, which is about the nicest restaurant that, that we have here in, in Norman. Um, and it's uh, across the street a bit from another uh, good restaurant in downtown called Scratch. Uh, so those are, those are a few good places. For me, I'm a, I'm a big breakfast guy. I love breakfast. And my favorite breakfast place and Norman is Juan del Fuego, which is, is uh, like a, uh, like a Mexi diner type, you know, place. It's a, uh, you know, really, really good Mexican themed breakfast. And um, there's another one similar to that uh, that's newer. It's also good called El Huevo. But yeah, Juan del Fuego is one of my favorite breakfast place. We have a chain of breakfast restaurants here. It was a local chain. Uh, in a few different places up in Oklahoma City and, and Norman called Neighborhood Jam, which is also a very good breakfast place. Um, that's right down on Main Street. Um, but breakfast options, I mean, they just keep getting better in Norman, which is perfect for me because that's it's usually what I eat out the most is breakfast. Dinners are less common. I have to jump in on this because I ate at a place called Honey Bunny Biscuit Company in Oklahoma City. Have you guys been there yet? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Love yeah, that place. It's a, it's a great place. So you'll have to check that out, Andrew. What is something that a visitor to central Oklahoma ought to do when they're coming to town, when they have some spare time? If you're coming to Norman in particular, go to the Sam Noble Museum. Okay, that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real treasure. I'm not sure Norman deserves to have that museum because I mean, just it's not what you would think of when you think of Norman. It's just a really unique thing to have. We, it's got a lot of really incredible and unique um, you know, fossils in there. It's the largest skull of any land mammal ever found. This big pentaceratops is in there and it's over seven feet tall. You stand in front of that thing and it's just uh, awe-inspiring. Um, and it, you know, just, it's a really great dinosaur exhibit. And then they've got a really uh, great uh, Native American exhibit upstairs. It's all, you know, uh, different tribes of, of Oklahoma, which is really neat. Um, I have five kids, so I, I usually like to go to the museums and these sorts of things a lot. And they, uh, they really love, especially my three-year-old boy, uh, really love uh, Sam Noble Museum. Um, but broadly, just an environmental type uh, situation. I mean, if you come to central Oklahoma, um, you know, right time of year, might as well storm chase. I mean, there's, <laughs> it, you don't have to do much. It's not too hard uh, to chase storms. And there's always beautiful uh, skyscapes to look at. Um, 
not that the University of Oklahoma condones storm chasing. I you know, always <laughs> emphasize that. This is not a university-related activity, but uh, just outside of that, as a, as a visitor to Oklahoma, if, uh, if you do it well and, and safely, that's a, a good, good, fun thing to do. Um, but we, we also have uh, some good hiking places not too far away, the Wichita Mountains, just a little over an hour away from Norman. Um, and uh, Mount Scott, one mountain kind of out here in the plains that doesn't really belong. It's, it's, it's an interesting place, but it's nice. A, a lot of great hiking out, uh, out west of the mountain. And uh, actually good hiking out by Lake Thunderbird, which is not, you know, the nicest lake in the world, uh, but it's really great trees and, and, and hiking trails all around the lake, the southern end of the lake. Uh, so I like to go out there and do that. I like to fish a lot. Um, kids and I will go fish, you know, just about any, any body of water uh, around here. And uh, good fishing and, and good, um, good out, outdoors activities. All right, one of my favorite parts about your class that I took last year was at the end of every class, you'd tell us a dad joke. So yeah, yeah, putting yeah. you on the spot, what's one of your favorites? Do you know what Yoda's last name is? I don't. Lehi who? Yeah, yeah Lehi who? You're like, you're Lehi who? Oh. I didn't yeah, think about yeah. that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I like that one a lot. That's uh, a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> I probably didn't tell that one to class. I, you know, I don't I, remember I probably, that one. But what do you call a dog that loves magic? A labracadabrador. Uh. <laughs> I, I like that one that's another one of my favorites since if meteorology didn't work out it was going to be the culinary arts so mm -hmm. i mean what's your favorite meal to prepare i mean if you oh, like yeah. cooking we got to know your favorite meal to prepare in terms of my favorite meal to prepare it's usually uh a good steak um and my favorite steak is is probably a, a dry aged ribeye uh at least inch thick um but, uh, but, you know, good, good filet mignon, good prime filet mignon is, is, is also a, a great option. Uh, but I, I really, really prefer steak. It's a, you know, it's a more than a day long process for me. I dry brine it, which means, you know, you just put a good amount of kosher salt on it, stick it on a, a cooling rack in your fridge overnight, meat draws all that salt in. So it's really well seasoned. I'll put a little garlic pepper and uh, garlic powder and, and black pepper on there. And then I'll grill it to the temperature it's supposed to be cooked, which is 135 degrees, medium rare, not supposed to be made any other way. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then I'll usually pair it with uh, I don't know, a wide range of sides. My One of my favorite sides to make is um, roasted Brussels sprouts. Mm. And so I'll, I'll roast Brussels sprouts with uh, a good amount of minced garlic, bacon, um, lots of uh, good stuff in there, salt, pepper, of course. And then I'll drizzle a, a balsamic reduction on them once they, they come out of the oven. So about 30, 30 minutes in the oven, bring them out, balsamic reduction. And then potatoes are a good bet. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's always, always good, you know, good mashed potato or a baked potato, or even, you know, if you get those little fingerling potatoes, really small ones and season them up and roast them. Those are good. 
All right, that's it. I'm on my way over to Dr. O'Meyer's house for dinner tomorrow night. <laughs> We're on our way. You go yeah. ahead and start that steak prep right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. O'Meyer, we appreciate your time tonight. If uh, our audience wants to follow any of your work, uh, you have a Twitter page or maybe a website or something like that that uh, that they can they can follow. Yeah, I mean, you could Google my name. I I think I'm the only Cameron Holmeyer in the world, um, but uh, it, you'll probably find either connections to the School Meteorology webpage at OU. I've got a, a pretty detailed group webpage up there. You can look at real-time overshooting products. We, we build these for the, the field project. Uh, right now, you can go on and, and look at a loop of, of uh, the radar observations or the satellite observations and what the overshoots look like. Um, and the satellite, you know, all those products, that's all coming from, from that colleague and group from NASA Langley, uh, Chris Bedka and his group. Um, and then, you know, all of our, our radar products up there. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I usually post a lot of you know, science-related things on there, rarely personal things. But if it is personal, it's usually food, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm cooking something. Um, I like to, uh, to rotisserie a chicken every once in a while. And I'll usually say, you know, the vortical bird has returned. Um, it's, you know, horizontal vorticity on the grill. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Most Scientist. Uh, also, you know, search my name on there. Probably find me that way too. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to interact with with folks and drop me a line or ask me questions on Twitter. Happy to to weigh in. Well, we appreciate your time and uh, thank you for joining us. And thank you all for watching us here at the Carolina Weather Group and listening to us. Please uh, be sure to like and subscribe to the YouTube page and to your favorite podcast. You can get up to the minute uh, latest information when we release new podcasts or when we go do severe weather coverage. So for everyone here, we thank you for watching. We'll see you back here real soon.